Now let's read his word together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has always had a special people. They've not always been many, but they've always been special. From Adam to Abraham, God's people were largely individuals or families. And so you had Adam and Seth and Enoch and, and Noah and Methuselah. But from Abraham to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's people were the chosen believers in, of Abraham. Abraham's descendants, believing descendants. But these people after Jacob, his grandson, were called Israel. And they made a choice, a terrible choice. They chose to reject Jesus, God's son. John says in his prologue that Jesus came into his own, and the Greek word there means into his own world, the world that he created. And his own, it's a different word, and his own people received him not. But from Calvary to this present moment, God still has his people. And they're not people of a certain locale or generation or nation or color, but they're people that are called out of every generation, every nation, every locale and every color. And they're marked by their faith in Jesus Christ and believers' baptism. And this message is the message that is, this is the group that this message is addressed to in, in this epistle, 1 Peter. And it's a message of hope and encouragement to everybody, every human heart. But I think that there is a note that we might miss in this message because we're so individualistic in our understanding of the Christian faith. And we might interpret this passage, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We might interpret that from an individualistic perspective. For example, when he says you are a chosen generation, we might interpret that. I am a chosen person. When he says you are a royal priesthood, we might interpret that. I am a royal priest and that's true. But he's talking here of Christians in the collective corporate sense. Together we are the chosen generation. Together we are a royal priesthood, collectively and corporately. Now sometimes the sermons I preach are sermons directed primarily to individuals. But this message is a message directed to the church collectively, to the people of God collectively. You as a people, we as a people are the chosen generation. And it suggests a privilege that leads to responsibility. And I want us to look at those two things separately. 
first of all, the special privilege to be called the people of God is a privilege that is greater than any other privilege in all the world. To be the people of God is to be privileged above anyone else on earth. And he defines that privilege with four terms. He says you are a chosen generation and the emphasis is on the word chosen. Oh, the wonder and the glory of being chosen. How terrible it is when you're not. Did you happen to be one of those who was never chosen on a playground? You know the scenario. You know, you got 20 kids and two captains and they're choosing to sides. And you and some nerd are all that's left, you know. And so they come down and, and, and one of the captains says, I'll take the nerd, you can have Gerald. You know, that's a terrible thing to, to be one of those that's never chosen. And I talk to people whose lives are just wrenched because they're not chosen. I performed a wedding here last night, a celebration. What was going on in this place last night was the celebration of choice. And the man said to the woman, of all the women I have ever known, I've chosen you to be my wife for the rest of my life. And the woman looked at the man and said, of all the men I have ever known, I have chosen you to be my husband for the rest of my life. And we celebrated the joy of being chosen. You are a chosen generation. In the Old Testament, there were two nations. There were the Jews and then there were the Gentiles, all the rest. But since Pentecost, there are three nations now. They are the Jews and they are the Gentiles, but that word Gentiles has a new meaning now. It doesn't refer, doesn't refer just to the non-Jews. It refers to the people who know not God. And then there is the third race of people, the third nation called out of all the people of the earth who have a special relationship, not because of the color of their skin or the culture they observe, but because of their relationship to Jesus Christ, chosen people. He's chosen us just like he chose Israel out of the loins of Abraham. And there are three factors involved in Israel's election and ours. Israel was, elect, was elected in order to be a recipient of a divine revelation, God moving in time to make himself known, chose Israel to reveal himself unto. And Israel was chosen to reflect the character of God and Israel was chosen to be an instrument that God might be known to man, a channel through whom the knowledge of God could flow to cover the earth like waters covering the sea. God has chosen us in the same way. Then he said a part of that privilege is that you are a royal priesthood. Now the word priesthood suggests unlimited access to God. Unlimited access to God. It means that there stands nothing between you and God except your own rebellion and sin. Unlimited access to God. Now in the Old Testament, the people of God had a priest. But in the New Testament age, the people of God are priests. But the emphasis of this word, of this term, is not on priesthood, but on royal. You are a royal priest, and it suggests status and standing. You are a kingly priest. 
Now you remember if you know anything about your Bible that King Saul got in trouble with Samuel and with God because he tried to combine the monarchy with the priesthood. This audacious man sought to join the altar and the throne. He sought to assume the responsibility of the priesthood and he incurred the wrath of God and of Samuel. But this author says, this apostle says, that Christ has made us kings and priests together. Royalty, it means two things. It means that when you come before God with unlimited access, you can come before God with special status. You can claim what is yours. You can claim your due. You can, let me say it sacredly, you can demand your due. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, ask and it shall be given you. The word he uses for ask is there. There is the word demand your due. You don't have to come before God as a beggar. You don't have to beg God. You can come with unlimited access before God as a king and demand your due. I've come to claim your promise to me. I've come to get what is rightfully mine as an heir, joint heir with Christ. And I have found that the church triumphant is a church that grasps that, who understands the church that's triumphant is a church that understands that we have a special relationship and that which we can claim will not beg us. The second thing it means is that because you're royalty, you need to act that way. Stop acting like a beggar who has nothing and start acting like a king who has everything. You're not a beggar, you're not a pauper, you're a king. Now there's a principle in psychology that says that we tend to act out what we're told about, what, we, what people say about us. So if you tell your children they're bad, they'll act that way. If you tell your ch children they're stupid, they'll act that way. Most of the time the preachment that goes out from pulpits is telling us how bad we are. I've come to tell you by the authority way for us to grasp it. And I, I don't, I, I said to the early service, there's absolutely zero concept of what this means, I think. That God by His sovereign authority, by His own will has set you apart, has set you apart. God's people has set you apart, consecrated unto Him for His work. Now there is a sense in which we talk about consecrating our life or being consecrated to God or consecrating some area of our life to Him. But there is a sense in which you cannot consecrate what has already been consecrated. Now God has already consecrated you. You already sanctified. You've already been set apart for His service. You are His holy people, set apart, consecrated, different. He said a part of that privilege is that you're God's own possession. Now, if you have a King James, it reads you are a peculiar people. Now, that word's come on hard times. That's what some of you think I am, peculiar. You know, it means odd and strange. It's what you think about your neighbor. He's odd, he's strange. That word doesn't mean today what it meant then. Listen carefully. 
That word when he said you are a peculiar people meant that you are a prized possession of God, valued. You're a treasure. And I thought about it a lot that here is this God who created everything that is. He could have had anything for his possession, his prize, his treasure, his valued possession. For example, he could have said, I'll take all the gold in the world and I'll put it in my vault and that's my treasure. Or I'll take all the diamonds that exist in the world, that's my treasure, that's my valued possession. But you know what? When he chose his special treasure, his most valued possession, the apple of his eye, he chose us. And if you want to touch God's most treasure, valued treasure, you put your finger on his people. Chosen, valued, precious treasure. I want you to see if you can imagine this. A man has an inheritance. He's received this inheritance in 10 years. It's going to be his to do anything he wants to with. In the meantime, he is to administrate the inheritance. He's going to do two things with it. He's going to perfect that inheritance and he's going to protect it. The Apostle Paul says that you are his inheritance. He's what he got when he invested his son's blood. And he's going to do two things with you. He's going to perfect his inheritance so that those things that come into our life that are, that are painful and, and resent, that we resent and we resist oftentimes are just God's way, is God's way of perfecting his treasure, his inheritance. And the second thing he's going to do, he's going to protect his inheritance. He's not going to lose you because he's invested his son's life in you. I heard about an old Jew who went out fishing every day. And when he'd come in and dock his little boat with the fish, the Gentiles would begin to barter with him and bargain. How much for the fish today? How much for the fish today? One day he took out his son on the boat with him. They hit a squall. His son was lost. When he came in and docked his little boat, the Gentiles began their bartering. How much for the fish today? How much for the fish today? And the old Jew said, my fish are not for sale today. They cost me my son. I was thinking the other day that we are, this church is all that God has as the result of his investment, the investment of the blood of his own son. And he's not going to lose us. He's going to protect us and he's going to perfect us. And lest you think that there's something in you and something in I think there's something in me that caused him, caused me to be his treasured possession. He gives us verse 10. He said, you were not, a, you were not a people. And now you are a people. You did not obtain mercy. Now you have obtained mercy. You know what he's saying? He's saying this, that all that we are in Christ and what we are in Christ is mind-boggling. But all we are in Christ is because God has shown mercy. And the difference between what I was and what I am is the mercy of God. We are a peculiar people. That's our privilege. But there's more to it than just being privileged. We are responsible and obligated. Someone put it like this. To be elected is an election 
to a social responsibility. To be God's chosen people means to be immediately exposed to His Word with all the momentous consequences that flow from hearing it. Now, because you're here this morning and you're, chosen, you're, you're God's people, there are some momentous consequences that you cannot escape. And the responsibility, the consequences of that, that privilege, he describes like this. He said, in order that you might show forth his excellencies who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there are two words that need to be discussed. One is the word excellencies. It means the virtue of God, the character of God. He said, you are his chosen people so that we can show to the world how great God is, how wonderful he is, how excellent he is, that we might proclaim to the world how great and good is God. Now this is what he means by that. He wants this darkened, benighted world to see the light about himself. You see, there are a lot of people who are in the dark about God. What can you show them about his virtue, his excellences? Well, you can show the world that he's just. There's so much injustice in the world because, as somebody said, man does not understand that God is just. He is faithful. This world of ours is riddled with infidelity and the lack of honesty and, and credibility because man does not understand that God is faithful. You can show the world that God is love and mercy. My uh, nature-loving friends tell me that they don't have to go to church, that they can know about God and learn about God and worship God out on the creek bank or, you know, up on top of a mountain somewhere. Well, there are some things that you'll never know about God just by looking at the daisies and the buttercups and the stars. And one of those things is that God loves you with an enduring love, with a mercy that endures forever. As somebody said, when you love as you ought to love, then you're giving witness to something in God far more noble than all the stars. Has anybody seen God lately? Has anybody seen Him in you? Does the world look at you and marvel at the greatness and the goodness of God? The second thing that needs to be, the second word that needs to be emphasized is the word proclaim. In the King James, it's show forth and has two ideas. It means to tell out. It means to speak it. It means to verbalize it. Can I ask you a personal question? How much have you talked this week about the goodness of God? Now, I'm going to just remember all the coffee shop visits, all the neighborhood visits, all the conversation you've had with your family, your children, your wife, your husband, What's went, what went on in, the, in, in your work world this week? How much did you tell of the goodness of God? He hardly ever enters our conversation. Can I ask you an even more personal question? 
How many of you have ever won anybody to the Lord? How many of you in the last year have, set, have just sat down with somebody and pressed the claims of Jesus Christ to their heart? How many of you have done that? If we have been called out of darkness to do that, doesn't that suggest that we have no reason to be apart from that? How many of you have been telling of the goodness of God? I heard a missionary tell that he was out in the bush and he saw a man who was blind. A missionary doctor, he said, I could tell that with a little help, the right kind of surgery and, and medical care, he could see again. So he brought him back to the city, out of the bush to the city, to one of our Baptist hospitals, and they performed surgery on him, and he could see. One day the doctor said, I was in my office, I heard a commotion, looked out the window. He said, I saw a long line of people, each one of them holding a rope. That man who had had his sight restored at the head of the rope, a line of blind men holding on to a rope. He said, I asked them, I asked him, what is, what is this? He said, I went back into the jungle and I found every man I could find who was blind and said to him, I know a man who can give you your sight. And every one of these men cried to me, take me to the man who can bring light to my darkness. It seems like the base, the most basic ingratitude of man would be that he could be brought out of darkness to light and not tell the blind about it. Is there anything any more thankless than that? Nature lovers say that, that a wasp will leave its nest and when it finds food, that wasp will somehow communicate to his friends, wasp, and they all come there. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but every time I'm stung by one of those suckers, there's usually a bunch of them around. I, I have a feeling that the one who stings says on that little communication line, hey, there's rich, soft food here, come, you know, and the whole swarm comes. Isn't it about time that the church left its nest isn't it about time that the church left its nest to a world that is blind and perishing and declare, if you're hungry, I have found bread. If you're blind, I have found light. Come with me. There's another idea in that word. It's the word to display, to show you see, sometimes people get tired of just words. Oh, we got a good talk. And my fair lady Eliza is being courted by Freddie who writes her every day these passionate love letters. Finally, she sings, words, words, I'm sick of words. Don't talk of stars above. If you love, show me. Don't Tell me of dreams filled with desire. If you're on fire, show me. Don't talk about a love that will last through life or make me undying vows. Show me now. And I think I hear this world around us 
saying and it's sorrow. Don't talk to me about love. Show me. Don't talk to me about forgiveness. Demonstrate it. Don't talk to me about deliverance. Show me a delivered life and I'll believe you. Don't spew out your words of the resources of God. Live like it. Show me and I'll believe you. Demonstrate it. I'm a sucker for Russell Stover candy. So when I'm in the mall and I have somebody with me, there's a, I think there's a Candy Anonymous. There's got to be. And one of the uh, Candy Anonymous persons is my wife. And so she helps steer me by Russell Stover's place. And we got this little stay, saying when you get to those corners, you know, in those malls that have all that candy out and those beautiful display windows, if it's like to our right, she'll say, eyes left. You know, because she knows that if I ever get a look at that candy, all my resistance just disappears. I'm going to say, well, tomorrow I'll start my diet. Won't hurt to get just about a pound of that luscious stuff. And there's there's a you know there's a special kind of Russell Stover candy that I just mm, love. And it's about 12, and I'm hungry. And if I had some, I, I'd probably eat it. There is a there's a there is a power that that's the power of a display window. I wonder if there's anybody who who passes by your life that is just drawn to God. How could that ever happen? Not with business as usual. I'll tell you what. I was, um, I was out doing a little road work this last week, huffing and puffing. And I was thinking about what's going on in our community. These are tough times. Now, I'm not going to go into the gory details. We all are know of them. In every walk of life, these are difficult times. It's difficult in our state. It's difficult in our city. And you know all the stuff that's happening. And as I was jogging along there in oxygen starvation and gasping for breath, I was thinking to myself, wow, what a wonderful time for the church to step forward. What a wonderful time for the church to step out and begin to display the excellencies of God. It's a wonderful time. It's the greatest time this church has ever known. This church here on this corner, second and evergreen. It's the greatest time this church has ever known. If we just grasp the moment, seize the opportunity. It's the time when we can step forward and say to a world that's saying, is there any difference? Is there any help? Is there any hope that we have? The answer. Can't do that with business as usual. When 26% of the American public by Gallup poll was interviewed, they said, I don't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. When 81% of the American public interviewed said they were, quote, Christians, and only 1% said they believe the Bible has any impact on a person's life. You can't do it business as usual. And somebody asked the founder of the McDonald's hamburger chain, Croc is his name, what do you believe in? Croc said, I believe in God. 
I believe in family. I believe in McDonald's hamburgers. And he said, when I get to my office, I reverse the order. I believe in McDonald's hamburgers. I believe in the family. And I believe in God. You know what he was saying? He was saying some kind of a subtle mask that masked the thought of most of us, most of us. And that is that the church is fine for Sunday morning and I'm going to give everything I've got to the church on Sunday morning. I believe in God and I'm going to show it on Sunday morning. But when I get back out there on Monday, it's business as usual for me. And God's going to take a back seat. And that's why we're going down the tube. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he meant that we, if we step forward and begin to display and proclaim the excellencies of God, we'll preserve the nation. And I believe Bill Hammer was right when he said that the church has the key to control the world because it has access, unlimited access, to the throne of Almighty God. But we're not going to do that. We're going to be right there going down the tube with the rest of them if we go on business as usual. You are a chosen generation. God arbitrarily and sovereignly chose you you are a royal priesthood, a priest that has king's status, set apart holy because God values you above anything else that he's ever created. And he sets you apart for one task only. And that task is to make sure that a darkened world sees the light that a crazed world understands that there's somebody who has reality, that a hungry world knows there is bread. Let's pray together. God, we cannot but get excited about the reality of who we are, what we are, what you've made us. God, I pray that we'll not miss that. That the church indeed will be the church. Triumphant, holy, different. Showing to a world without mistake that God is God and that he makes a difference. Because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now look this way. There are three invitations this morning. One invitation is for you to come and receive God's gift of eternal life. He, if you can be saved this morning, and the Bible says you can, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it means that God, before you were ever born, elected you and chose you. And what you must do is to come and acknowledge His choice of you and receive the gift He's already prepared for you, the gift of eternal life. Do this as this little child this morning came in the first service to say, I want to come and place my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to come and get what's mine.
A second invitation this morning is an invitation of rededication of your life. The question still is there. Can anybody see God in you? And when they see God in you, what do they see? What is he like to them? Or maybe you need to join the church. This is the local church that meets at this place of all that family of God. You feel like this would be a place where God could use you and you could be ministered to. We encourage you to come while we stand and sing.